0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Tim Butler, founder and chief executive of Innovation Visual, a creative and results-focused digital marketing agency based in Surrey. Tim, Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Uh, Now, normally we get directly into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID situation, we must start there. How has this affected your business?
1: Um, It's been very interesting. I think the biggest thing is the amount of instability and uncertainty that it's created um, for our clients and then through contagion. If you like um, to our business, so um, it helps us in many ways um, because people are turning to digital marketing. But in other ways, it has been uh, it has been obviously problematic, and uh, it's certainly been an issue for for staff as well as for um, for our clients.
0: What sort of new procedures have you put into place to deal with the effects of COVID and the restrictions surrounding it?
1: We've moved to a, a fully um, remote um, working model, which we were part remote anyway in terms of we had some uh, some of our team working outside of the office, so it was very easy for us to move to a remote model. Um, that's been the the major change um, for the team and for myself. But our working practices are, are still relatively similar in terms of what we do we just collaborate in slightly different ways um, using more um, video calling and I think our interactions with clients has also been an area of change where we typically would have met face-to-face every three months at least with a client Uh, now we're doing um, those larger review meetings which would have been face-to-face over video calling.
0: Now what sort of uh these procedures that you put into place now, do you feel you might uh, extend past uh, the period of
1: COVID? Well, interestingly, we've we've already taken a decision to change permanently, regardless of the COVID situation. So we put a anonymous survey to our team, and we asked them various questions about how they wanted to work, not just in the current situation, but also going forward and we asked the question, would you want to carry on living in the same place as we're based in the southeast of England, um, uh, or would you want to move if you could? And it was interesting. We had nearly a quarter of our team said that they would consider or they were actively considering moving house. So we have now said to our team that the changes we've implemented are permanent, and therefore um, they will get to work remotely remotely, Regardless of the COVID situation, and, and interestingly, one of our team put in an offer on a on a house in Newcastle uh, just two weeks ago. So, um, the the change has happened, and the changes have stuck with us.
0: Now we are, are here to discuss the concept of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question: What does the word leader mean to you?
1: Um. I think a good leader or, or leadership is about allowing the people um, within your team to do their best work, to, to thrive and to develop themselves. I think you are a facilitator as a leader and that should be your focus. You should see success as a leader being about success of the people um, within your team, within your unit or within your business.
0: And how would you describe your personal leadership style?
1: I would probably describe it as evolving and learning <laughs> in that um, I don't think I don't think you're you ever finish learning as a leader. It's something that you have to work on constantly and you have to develop as a leader. I think that I'm very open and honest and I think I'm also quite demanding and particular um and set very high standards uh, for people to to operate to which can be problematic at times being very picky and uh and difficult to work with but I think at the same time um I'm very open and transparent as a leader
0: now, of course, every leader has their inspiration. How did you get to your leadership style? Did you have a particular role model, or were you shaped more by circumstance?
1: I think the, I think that we are shaped by the leaders that we come across in our private and professional lives as we develop as people. I think it. I think it's um, inevitable that we take inspiration and we take guidance and 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 um techniques from those that we see around us i was fortunate in that my father uh was the leader of a, a public sector organization and i saw the way that he led with a great deal of integrity a great deal of passion um and a great deal of care i would say for the people for the people that he that worked for him in his organization but also the the people that those people served, if you like, their, their end customers in inverted commerce I think that's been a very powerful influence on my leadership style. I think also I've been fortunate to be mentored um, by Dr. Martin Stillman-Jones, who has had a very successful professional career. And I think he's... He's opened my eyes to uh, an analytical and problem-solving style of leadership, and I think that those those two people um, have probably been the most influential in terms of um, uh, the the day to day. And then I think that um, organisations and uh, also leaders like uh, Yvonne Cunard from Patagonia, in terms of his approach to the way he deals with people and the impact of an organization on the environment. I think that he's been influential in that um, we try and operate as a business to be profitable, to be successful, like Patagonia, but at the same time to minimize our environmental impact in a negative way and maximize our positive um, social impact.
0: Now, unfortunately, our time together is wearing thin. Uh, but before I let you go, I just want to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Firstly, how do you deal with conflict?
1: How do I deal with conflict? Yes. Um, through communication. Through communication and understanding. First, seek to understand all sides before you start to present resolution.
0: If you were to advise young people to look to one person in business for inspiration, who would that be?
1: I think it would be themselves and believe in themselves. I think that there's no one person they should look to other than themselves, but have self-belief. And I think that holds a lot of young people back. And it shouldn't.
0: And what does the next 12 months have in store for Innovation Visual?
1: I think that we're going to be at the forefront of um, challenging times to help people change the way that they communicate with their customers and their prospective customers. and It's going to be a very exciting time due to the challenge, but uh, we're, we're looking forward
0: to that. Well, Tim, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been a pleasure to have you. And of course, we have to have you at some point in the future. But I think for now, all there's left to say is goodbye. Goodbye,
1: and thank you very much for having me on the program.
0: That was Tim Butler, founder and chief executive of Innovation Visual. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Scott Challoner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
3: Uh, good morning. How are you?
2: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
3: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It's it's lovely.
2: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it, or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
3: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record, and me. It's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in in the country um, if if he can achieve that. But more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, My achievement is about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is, uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the
1: team. Mm.
2: Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal... I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time, and there's quite a bit of a joke about that, but there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened, the ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4 and lifted the World Cup, but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you?
3: Yes, I think people, um, I, I've, I I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game, towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving, play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game, I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm having to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand, into the corral. by the time the boy ball ball gets it back to uh, Hans-Pilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss and it, and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
2: It just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership be it in sport or in business you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
3: Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making it's got to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks. In the mm-hmm. walks of life, an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
2: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, to uh, Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming. But that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service, and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts, and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
3: Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. and I think it was a great idea. Uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for, w- for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital and uh, important it is, is to have a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into all also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with. And just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined moved from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach as who is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the real reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country, you're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the uh, country is is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say oh, I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Leadership's important, and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers have, have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after you're playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people make mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all sorts of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continues making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm,
2: completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February um, Sir Jeff I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were to and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden is that true?
3: (laughs) Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were not football pitches or a place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, It's not a big long road uh, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a free ball play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making and Wood gliders and a uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, occasionally the ball will finish up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. A- astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the streets. and uh, we were actually. So that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbors falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true
2: and during that time um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you
3: well my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rostyle. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we'd have, I was born in Ashton under the Line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelsea and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um um Two footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he had, had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child. Although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal, and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them, and uh, they saw something in the end, took me on the, what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Um uh, Although I enjoyed football, I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, He uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
2: And I suppose as well what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
3: Yes, not a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game. the sort of went messing about, but t- t- between the two, I had the uh, one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egbert in um, in Liverpool, and I think I got naught and and nought not out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I saw a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game, um, v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up when you look back, when uh, even today, cricket goes through till what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September. Missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 seasons, the three years of all the World Cup.
2: And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper,
3: Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had, uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realize, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago. And they're showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, program about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pele and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, sort of, not just kicking balls so out Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him, and who are close to him, and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, we're, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player but in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, not with the best, the best for me. to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did and um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea he lost a bit of weight and uh, although he was a little bit in himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players. I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top, being, being an England player. But i compare him purely on ability, compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
2: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England?
3: Um, well, I think Ireland was just still sort well. Of, uh, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and uh, make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of um, of football in America, when uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate. At West Ham, but we, but it was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with both cities uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time. For that particular club, they'd won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very really close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate. That, who have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was, uh, wasn't was at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success that club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was a that was good time. It was Completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid. For, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England, <laughs> new kitchen.
2: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career.
3: Yes, yeah, so I think it's I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some, sort of immediately after the finished playing, but in the long term. When, um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, 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 whatever the word is, I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years, not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing things during, my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years, I don't think anybody looked, necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up to. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably.
2: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
3: Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes have natural characteristics. You can learn about management on management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, because I take it into my my business life and even my you know, uh, talking to my family life if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out, and I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be. They wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm,
2: ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
3: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes.
2: So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the, uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further.
3: Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you.
2: Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again.
0: This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye.